Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, in our journey through the parables of Jesus, we have come today to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I don't know about you, I don't know if this is the first time you have ever been in a church building today, I don't know if you've been in church every Sunday of your life, but no matter what that background is, my hunch is you at least have some vague understanding of this story, because this story and that phrase of a good Samaritan is everywhere in our culture. If you were to just open up your phone, your computer, and just Google the phrase Good Samaritan, you would find all kinds of expressions of that phrase. You would find a number of hospitals named Good Samaritan. You would find information about the Good Samaritan Society that provides care for the elderly. You would find uh, pet adoption agencies with that name. You would find information about Good Samaritan laws that protect people who give first aid in an emergency. You might even, if you look in the right place, find clips from the very last episode of Seinfeld. This is one of, if not the most famous parables Jesus ever told. So I'm assuming that even if you're not familiar with the exact biblical text of Luke 10, 25-37 this morning, you at least seem to have some frame of reference in your mind about, about what this parable is about. Jesus tells this story about a guy who was nice to someone he didn't have to be nice to. The moral of the story is we should be nice to one another as well. Now, on one level, that makes preaching this parable easier. I can assume that you might know more about the text this morning than you would know if we were preaching on the book of Obadiah this morning. And before you start flipping through your Bible, that is a book of the Old Testament. And yet, at the same time, that makes the task of preaching a parable like this more difficult. One old preacher, Fred Craddock, used to say that, that uh, in parables like this, passages of Scripture that are well known, very often what happens is once you announce what you're preaching on, you get what's called the nod of recognition. That as soon as you say what the passage is, if some of you are nodding right now, that as soon as you say what the passage is, you think, oh yeah, I know this one, I've heard sermons on this before, I know what it's all about, I can check out, I can get a power nap in before whatever is <laughs> taking place this afternoon. And it seems that in human nature, in my experience, we tend to become more uh, um, comfortable with things that are around us every day, and, and we tend to not pay as much attention to the things that, that are a part of our life every day, no matter how incredible those things might be. I, I don't have to say, but you probably know already that any one of us, if we wanted to right now, we could walk out the doors of this building, get in a car, and in 15 minutes, we could be at the front door of one of the top medical institutions in the country. Some of you dread me saying that because you have to go there to work here soon. But, but it's one of those things that we are all aware of, but we probably don't think about it all that often because it's just a part of the environment that is around us each and every day. Uh, the fact that we live in the same town as the Mayo Clinic might bring about in us the knot of recognition, just like how the parable of the Good Samaritan might cause us to think in the same way. And so faced with that, uh, 
as a, as a preacher, you can have a number of options. We can, I could stand up here and, and stand on my head and make sure you never forget this sermon or something like that. I could come up here and say, I found something new. You've never heard the Good Samaritan like this before. And, you know, there's nothing necessarily evil in doing that or something like that. But in thinking in those lines, I'm reminded of a quote from the old English preacher Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon once said, you can see on the screen, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. This story is popular and familiar for good reason. And that reality could mean we lose interest, or it could be an invitation to dig deep into this message to discover why these words of Jesus are so popular. Because if we truly listen to this story and the point that Jesus is making from it, I I firmly believe it can transform our world. So my challenge this morning for all of us, myself included, is that we would approach this passage like the lion that it is. Not walking past it because we've seen this particular lion before, but simply to let the lion loose and allow it to work on our hearts as God invites us to a love without limits. Just like the love that he has for us. Let me read for us from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. A teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? He, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This passage begins with an abstract theological question from a religious leader. And it's unclear exactly why this question is posed. Maybe this religious leader is trying to trap Jesus in his words. That's something that happens a fair amount of the time as Jesus interacts with the religious elite of his day. Regardless of the underlying motives, we could at least say that this expert in the Old Testament law is posing a question to Jesus that he already knows an answer to in his own mind. 
And yet at the same time, it doesn't mean it's a bad question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is required of me if I desire to participate in life in God's kingdom? Jesus doesn't answer the question. He turns the question around and asks the religious leader what he thinks. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, a text that was foundational for the Jewish people. Moses tells the people that they are to love God with every part of who they are, and they are to put that command everywhere. They are, teach it, they are to teach it to their children. They are to remind them of it constantly because loving God with every fiber of your being is the most important thing to pursue as God's people. And then secondly, the religious leader quotes from Leviticus 19, a passage that's, that's maybe a little more obscure. And we can be honest, Leviticus 19 is a chapter where Bible reading plans go to die. I mean, you, you start on January 1st, you're going to read the Bible through in a year, and everything's exciting in Genesis, all these stories, the early chapters of Exodus are incredible as God leads His people out of slavery, and then you hit Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and then the laws start, and by the time you get to Leviticus 19, you're ready to, ready to give it up completely. And it's not like our English translations help all that much. Some English Bibles, uh, the heading they give over Leviticus 19 says various laws, which is not the best branding I've ever heard of. But in this chapter, God is explaining what it looks like to live as his people. And in the midst of that, he, one component of it is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The most important thing that anyone desiring to be a part of God's people can do is to love God with every part of who they are and to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And if we're honest, the story could end right there. Jesus and this religious leader in agreement about what's important in the world and everyone goes on their way, but we get verse 29. The religious leader wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know what that means, that he wanted to justify himself. We could infer a number of things. Maybe uh, this religious leader does have ill intent, and he's trying to trap Jesus in his words, and he's failed because Jesus turned the question around on him. So this is one last attempt to try to get Jesus in a corner. I don't know, maybe he's got an ego. And as Jesus puts him on the spot like this, he feels uh, hurt a little bit, and so he's trying to save face a little bit. Maybe, maybe he actually is genuinely looking for an answer to the question from Jesus. Maybe he has an agenda, and he's just wanting Jesus to confirm his own preconceived notions. I don't know, but I know he asked Jesus to clarify, who is my neighbor? I mean, how wide of a net do we have to cast with that? If we read Leviticus 19, the question really isn't answered all that clearly. In Leviticus 19.18, the verse that's just been quoted, it says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you keep reading Leviticus 19, you get down to verses 33 and 34, and God says, love the foreigners among you because you were foreigners in Egypt. So are those two separate commands? Are they one, two ways of, of, of saying the same thing in two different spots? Um, are we just talking about the people who, who fit the strictest definition of a neighbor? Are we just talking about the people who live on, other, on either side of where I live? Something a little more broad? I mean, if, if I've got a, a neighbor on my street that I don't like, can I move a block over and then I'm in the clear? If I move far enough into the woods, am I off the hook of this one? 
I, growing up on a farm, I would get confused sometimes. I'd be out and about with my grandpa, and we'd see someone that I didn't know, and he'd say, well, that's your neighbor. And I'd say, well, where do they live? And he'd say, well, you go like five miles down the road past your house, and then you make a right, and you go a couple more miles, and you make a left, and you go down this valley and up over this hill, and then they live back in there. And I'd think, I don't know if that's what Mr. Rogers had in mind when he talked about being a neighbor to someone. But is that how wide we're talking here, or is it something a little more narrow And as is so often the case, Jesus was not the only Jewish teacher of his day to have this question posed to him. And it seems to have been that outside of Jesus, the consensus was generally to draw the line around God's people. God's people were the ones who were to love one another as they love themselves. And if anyone wants to come and be a part of that group, wants to join to get inside the lines here, that's great. Once you come in, we will love you as we love ourselves. But as long as you're outside the lines... We're off the hook. And Jesus is being asked if he draws the lines in the same way. And so to provide an answer to that question, he tells a story where actually the lines don't seem to be so neat and clean, and actually there might not be any lines at all. Jesus says a man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now those are two cities we hear about a fair amount as we read through Scripture, but that does not mean uh, that this is uh, a well-populated and, and a safe journey. Uh, imagine the roughest neighborhood you can think of, and a story begins that someone's in that neighborhood, and it's late at night, and their cell phone is dead, and they've never been there before, and they're a long ways from home. That's the sort of situation Jesus describes. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was 17 miles, and it was through the mountains. It was narrow paths. There were all kinds of nooks and crannies for robbers to hide in, and that is exactly what has happened here. No one in their right mind, travels through here on their own unless they want something like this to happen to them. So this man's attacked, beaten, has everything he owns taken from him, and he's left for dead. This would have been a common enough occurrence in Jesus' day. The story most of the time would have ended with the person dying in the ditch. But hope is not lost. Uh, Jesus says that a priest comes along, a priest, about the most spiritual person you could imagine. I mean, they work in the temple. He's been offering sacrifices before God on behalf of the people all day. Jesus says that he's on his way down the road, which in biblical terms means that he is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho because of the elevation change. So we don't know for sure. Maybe he lives in Jericho. He's traveling home after a day of work in the temple. He spent the day in the presence of God. He spent his day in the place where heaven and earth are supposed to intersect. Who could be more equipped to provide help in this situation? But priests were required by Old Testament law to avoid touching anything that was dead. So, I mean, if, if this priest does try to help, if he gets over there and, and maybe this man has already perished in the ditch, then he's got a problem because then he's ceremonially unclean. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, lightning's going to come down from heaven in that moment and zap him or something like that, but it does mean he'll have to go through this week-long purification process. Uh, a week of, of being able to do his job again, and that is a hassle. Maybe it's just best to leave the guy be. I mean, he's a busy guy. He's got an important job. He, he is, uh, he's 
is supposed to help a lot of people in his day job. This is a busy road. Someone else will be along eventually. They don't have to worry about the stuff that I have to worry about. Surely my time could be better spent to just keep moving. So he crosses over to the other side of the road. He makes extra sure he doesn't come in touch with what might be unclean. I guess the ancient equivalent of social distancing. And he goes on his way. And not long after that, a Levite comes along. Now, a Levite is not as high up on the temple corporate ladder as a priest, but they had important roles to fulfill. You might remember in the Old Testament that the tribe of Levi is set apart uh, uh, to serve God's people. And so even the most average Levite would be responsible for behind-the-scenes things in the temple, making sure everything is there. They have, the priests have all the supplies they need to go about the daily tasks of uh, serving in the temple. And again, we have someone whose day job is to be one of the religious leaders of the people, to equip God's people to worship Him properly. But again, for, for some reason maybe for the sake of his own religious purity, maybe because of his ego, maybe because of his busy schedule. Something's more important than dealing with this man laying on the side of the road in desperate need of medical attention. So like the priest before him, he crosses over to the other side and continues on his way. Now obviously we all know how the story ends. I've already read the text this morning, uh, the parable's called the Good Samaritan. We all know how it turns out, but if you can, imagine with me that you're hearing this story for the first time. Maybe imagine you are a person in the crowd listening to Jesus' dialogue with this religious leader and give this parable. At this point, I'm assuming that we're all expecting a happy ending of some sort. Jesus isn't going to end the story and just say, and then the guy died, and that's it. But what kind of ending are we expecting? Who are we expecting to be the hero? I mean, we have other instances in Scripture where summaries are given and we're told of priests, Levites, and Israelites. We have priests and Levites and then all Israel, things like that. So maybe, whatever we're expecting, we're expecting it to be someone who's a part of God's people. A few years ago, I was back in Missouri, and, and there was a cold morning. I was down in the single digits, and I hadn't lived in Minnesota yet, so I thought it couldn't get worse than that. And my car wouldn't start. So I was there. I was by myself. I was in a parking lot. Car wouldn't start. I didn't know what, what to do, where to go, who to call. And, and in the midst of trying to figure that out, someone, I don't know, we might call them a good Samaritan, showed up and asked me if I needed a, needed a jump, if I had cables and if, if he could give me a jump start. And you know, you always want to be a little careful with strangers in grocery store parking lots, but I knew I was in good hands, because as he and I were talking, he was wearing a jacket, and I could just make out that underneath his jacket, there seemed to be a blue and orange football jersey on. And, and as I looked more closely, I could see the number 18 on that jersey, and if I looked real close right under the collar, I could make out in small print those beautiful words, Broncos. So I didn't know everything about this guy in that moment, but I knew he was a fine, upstanding member of society with good taste in football teams. And so we, we you know, got my car started. We stood there for a while, and, and, uh, and as the car warmed up, we had a, a great conversation about how the Denver Broncos were incapable of finding a halfway decent quarterback, which hopefully they f I think they fixed since then, but that's a different sermon for a different day. 
The story of the Good Samaritan is supposed to end like that. Sure, the priest and the Levite, they're out of touch. They're more concerned with themselves. They're afraid to roll up their sleeves and help a poor guy laying in a ditch. But the average Israelite, just a regular guy who loves God, knows that when you see someone hurting, laying in a ditch near death, you remember Leviticus 19 and you help them. But Jesus doesn't end the story the way he's supposed to. Instead, the, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. The average Israelite in Jesus' day would never have conceived of naming a hospital or a charity after a Samaritan. The Samaritans were descended from Israelites who intermarried with other nations during the exile in the Old Testament. The very fact that the Samaritans existed for the average Israelite was a sign of disobedience to God's covenant with his people. You might remember the story in John 4. Jesus is in the region of Samaria. He encounters a Samaritan woman at a well. He's thirsty. He's tired. He asks her for a drink, and her response is, "Uh, why are you talking to me? Because you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And John makes that little side comment in John 4, 9 in parentheses. He says, well, Jews and Samaritans, they don't really associate with each other, just in case we've missed it. At different points in his ministry, Jesus creates shockwaves because he's even willing to set foot in the region of Samaria, much less interact with a Samaritan, much less make a Samaritan a hero. That sort of thing was just not done by any self-respecting Jewish person in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus does exactly what he's not supposed to do. Because not only is the Samaritan the hero here, the Samaritan is a hero that goes above and beyond. He not only administers first aid on the side of the road, he puts him on his donkey, he transports him to an inn which is slow and painstaking. And as we've just seen, there are plenty of people around who might want to rob you and leave you for dead if you're an easy target. Not only that, he, he gets this man to an inn, and he gets there, he covers his medical expenses. He, at first, he gives two denarii, the equivalent of two days' worth of work. And he says to the innkeeper, take this, I hope it covers everything. And if it doesn't, he essentially writes a blank check. He says, the next time I'm through, if there's any cost beyond what this will cover, just let me know and I will pay it. Jesus says that loving your neighbor as yourself looks like a Samaritan giving up his time and money to ensure that a perfect stranger left for dead on the side of the road gets the care they need to survive. It doesn't look like figuring out who's on the inside of the lines and who is not. It looks like simply loving and caring for people, no matter who they are. And it's easy enough to track with what Jesus is saying when the hero of the story is someone we like. I mean, when the hero of the story looks like us, thinks like us, acts like us, then the lines stay neatly drawn and simple. My preconceived notions are confirmed. Story's great when the hero's wearing a Broncos jersey. What if they're wearing a Raiders jersey? What if they're wearing a Vikings jersey? Or a Packers jersey? What if they have stickers on their car that say certain lives matter, whether they're black or blue? What if they get out of their car and they're wearing a mask or they're not wearing a mask? 
How do we feel about the hero then? What do we do when loving our neighbor looks like caring for someone the world around us says is a monster and should not be trusted? How do we feel when Jesus redraws the lines and they end up in places that take us beyond our comfort zone? Because that is exactly what Jesus is doing as he makes the Samaritan the hero. It is uncomfortable. And that is by design. Loving your neighbor in this story looks like reaching across social divides to extend love and care. And based on how this religious expert responds to Jesus' question about who's the neighbor in this story, he hears the message well and clear. He just doesn't like it. If you notice, at the end of the story, he says the neighbor is the one who had mercy. He can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Jesus has taken the definitions of who is a neighbor and has thrown them out the window because wherever we might draw the line, wherever we might limit who is worthy of love and who is not, Jesus rejects the premise of the question. Jesus says that love within his kingdom looks like a Samaritan being the hero. It looks like love that reaches across any and all divides so that the love of God might be known and demonstrated. And Jesus will not allow us to leave that love in theory. And he very easily could have. I mean, this entire passage begins with a hypothetical question about how, interpret, how to interpret the Bible. Jesus tells a fictional story to make his point about, that he's getting at, and the conversation could end there in the realm of the abstract. But the story ends with verse 37 and a call to action. Jesus is not content to speculate in theory. He goes out into the world in the way he's just described. Loving without limits. Reaching across whatever divide our world might put up with the love of God. And that is what God's people are called to do. It is not a love that always makes rational sense to a watching world. It is not a love that only happens on Sundays or in certain buildings or on social media. It is a love that takes action so that the love of God can be tangibly demonstrated in a world that desperately needs it. We live in a world full of anger and strife and division, a world that is constantly trying to draw clear lines about who is in and who is out, and once you figure out who is in, they are the only people you have to worry about and everyone else can be cast aside. The love of God is not confined by limits. It is available to everyone. And that is the solution to the division of our world. It is a love that cares for the sick and the hurting and the dying and the shut-in. It is a love that does not hold grudges but seeks forgiveness and reconciliation. It is a love that always looks for what is best for the other person, even when what is best for them might infringe upon my rights or doesn't look like love from their perspective. It is a love that seeks to break down the walls that our world puts up. It is a love that can be messy and might not always make sense, but it is modeled after the love that Jesus has shown us. A few summers ago, I was working at a church camp, and, and one day we didn't have anything going on at the camp. And myself and a friend of mine who was also working there, we encountered this guy who just wandered out of the woods and showed up on the property. And so we got to talking with him, and he said, you know, I, I was, I'm here uh, camping with this group, and, and we were out on a hike, and I got separated from them. I have no idea where I am. You know, this is just where I ended up. So... 
We took them into the camp office. We tried to make some phone calls. Couldn't connect with any one services spotty um, in that part of the world. And the more we talked, we kind of had a rough idea of where his group was probably camping at, and it wasn't too far away. And, and as we were working that out, my friend who was there, he said, well, hey, you know, uh, sorry we're not able to connect with anyone. I've actually got some stuff I need to take care of. Monty will help you find your group. <laughs> so we get in the truck, start driving down the road back to where I think their campground might be. And in the midst of the conversation while we're driving, he begins to share that the last few years he had made some bad decisions. And life had kind of gone off the rails. And that actually this camping trip was with a rehabilitation group uh, that had been working with him. And this is the part of the story where the preacher is supposed to say, you know, and we, there just happened to be a, a lake nearby, and so we stopped, and I just baptized him on the spot, and now he's a preacher at a megachurch somewhere. But if I can be honest, I'm not the hero of this story. Because in that moment, my mind immediately went to all the ways that this could go wrong, and I'm by myself, and there's no cell phone service, and I don't know what, where we're going or who we're going to encounter once we get there. What is going on? How can I get out of this? couple minutes pass, we drop him off. I turn around, start driving back to the camp. And this story knocked me over. Because in that moment, as a follower of Jesus, I was called to love my neighbor, as each and every one of us always are. And the call to love a neighbor in that moment was not dependent upon love your neighbor unless they have a criminal background. The call was not love your neighbor unless it gets in the way of what you thought you were going to do that afternoon. The call was then and is always for all of us to love the neighbors who are in front of us. The message of Jesus calls us to a love that has no limits. And from the perspective of a world that constantly puts up walls, it seems unnecessary and over the top, but when we understand who Jesus is, it makes no sense that we would ever do anything else. The love Jesus calls us to have for the world in this passage is the exact same love he had for us. And we get a glimpse of that, <laughs> excuse me, in verse 33 of this parable. At the end of verse 33, Jesus says that when the Samaritan came along the man, he took pity on him. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're reading a different translation, it might say that the man had compassion on him. And that's the same word we saw in the parable of the unforgiving servant we looked at last week. It's the same attitude the king had towards the servant who had amassed a debt that he would never be able to repay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'll be done soon. As we read through the Gospel of Luke, this word is almost always used in reference to how Jesus acts towards others or it's Jesus speaking about how God acts towards us. But here it describes the emotions of the Samaritan towards the man in the ditch. 
Later in Luke 15, it'll describe the actions of the father towards his son who had run away. In other words, the way the Samaritan acts towards the man in the ditch is how Jesus acts towards us. He calls us to a love without limits because he has loved us without limits. For all the barriers our world puts up, for all the barriers Jesus had to cross in coming to us, None of them, none of the barriers of our world are greater than the barriers Christ has crossed in coming to us as he left perfection in heaven to come to this imperfect world, to die on the cross so that we might be healed. He came across us lying in the ditch, and he did not cross over to the other side. And he calls us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of the gospel. That when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the life we have in your Son. Help us live in response to what he has already done for us to the world around us. In his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.